are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the U.S. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them in the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Sarah Winslow Fisher. I'm the executive director of the Kavira Coalition. And today on Regeneration Rising, I'm talking to Megan Filbert of the Practical Farmers of Iowa. Welcome, Megan Felbert, to Regeneration Rising. Really happy to have you on. Why don't you uh, in- introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. Yeah, thanks so much, Sarah. Really happy to be here with you. So I'm Megan Filbert, and I am a grazing and livestock enthusiast and reside in central Iowa. So I work at Practical Farmers of Iowa, which is a nonprofit in Ames and in, in central Iowa, um, that with our, with our mission of equipping farmers to build resilient farms and communities. And what I do there is I'm, I manage the livestock program, which essentially means I work with a network of, oh, 500 to 800 different livestock farmers all across the spectrum of farming practices in Iowa and the upper Midwest. And, really try to promote the promote the integration of livestock onto our landscape in Iowa. And really, I should say the reintegration of livestock onto our landscape. So we really want to try to mimic what Iowa, you know, try to get closer to what Iowa used to be like um, through the integration of all types of livestock species into our predominant um, cropping systems that exist here in the Midwest. So that's a little bit about my work life. And then I am a beginning farmer myself. My husband and I raise sheep and goats on the edge of what was once oak savanna and prairie land. And so we're using sheep and goats to to regenerate the land here, to really take take control of the invasive species that have encroached over the last 50 to 70 years, um, and then make room for um, more open woodland and better pastures so we can start incro- incorporating more species of livestock. So really all things livestock is what my life revolves around. That's great. And I have visited your operation and it's really lovely and amazing to see sort of how, uh, what you're able to do with goats and sheeps, sheeps, <laughs> goats and sheep to, um, really begin to create, um, a healthier forest ecosystem sort of between cropland and the river. Um, I really appreciate that about what you're doing. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you got started in agriculture. Uh, as I understand it, you didn't necessarily come from a farming family and um, would love to hear about that journey. Absolutely. So I, um, I'm from Iowa and 
I attended Iowa State. So I stayed in Iowa to go to college and I was studying studying. I was undecided, an undecided major at Iowa State. I did not know exactly what I wanted to do, but I always had had this dream of being a veterinarian. And one day on campus, I was hearing like the bell tower chime and I had this epiphany and I said, I need to change my major to animal science and really make this happen. So I changed my major the next day. And since then, I've studied animal science. So I have a degree in animal science from Iowa State. And through my time in undergrad, I realized that there were other other career paths besides being a veterinarian and wanted to pursue those instead. And I was um, influenced by many of my professors to go to graduate school. And so I went to grad school in Ithaca, New York at Cornell and again studied animal agriculture, international animal agriculture and, and nutrition. Um, and really it was during my time living in upstate New York and experiencing a, di- a diversity of agriculture around me, animals, crop, crops, and, you know, all things integrated, which was a lot different than what I had seen on the Iowa landscape, which was pretty much the same thing over and over, corn, beans, pigs, cows, all raised in similar ways. Um that's really where I started learning about diversified agriculture um, and really mimicked what I had seen and learned when I did some study abroad trips and went international to study animal ag. And that's really more of what I, my values align with. Um, I then started working in the Catskills in upstate New York um, for Cornell Cooperative Extension in an area that supplies all of New York City's drinking water. So it was all about how can we use working farms in conjunction with New York City's water supply to ensure that we keep water clean. And so as I'm learning about all of this manure management and proper animal husbandry to support healthy water, I'm hearing about all of these water quality issues that are happening in Iowa, where I'm from. And I started thinking like, I really should take my knowledge and my experience that I've just gotten in upstate New York and apply it to where I'm from. And I then found out about this organization, Practical Farmers of Iowa, which seemed like they were doing incredible, incredible things in Iowa that very much were like the things that I was pursuing elsewhere and was a lot different from my experience, my prior experience studying in Iowa, which I will say I was somewhat brainwashed at Iowa State as an undergrad in animal science, not coming from a farming background. I only learned how to feed animals corn and soybeans. I never, ever learned how to formulate a ration around, around forages and grass. And so it really took me leaving and coming back to appreciate this landscape and to like bring back this new set of knowledge because I know that Iowa has the best soil in the world. So why couldn't we grow the best grass in the world? We, we can, if we want, we could do both things. We can integrate cropping systems with more, more grass and, and strike a better balance and clean up our water, which is what we desperately need. So that's really how I got back to Iowa.
So it sounds like you came back to Iowa, but you were still in a role of technical service provision to farmers and ranchers. I'm wondering if you could next talk about how did you decide that you were going to enter into having your own operation? Good question. I have always thought that I wanted to work a bit in an office job because I'm well suited to, I'm an extrovert and really well suited to working with people and working with a huge network of farmers. It just was this natural extension of, of what I'm good at doing. But I always in the back of my mind said, I would love to make this transition and this leap to become a full-time farmer. And I will say, I'm still not a full-time farmer. And Um, you know, there's a lot of circumstances that many beginning farmers go through that I'm also going through on why on off farm jobs are still pretty important to have. Um, and so at this point I've still kept my off farm job and started a farm. So it's kind of like two different jobs. I will say working virtually has allowed me to better to to better build this farm here and to actually have livestock so I'm not having to commute somewhere every day, which has really allowed me to be able to farm. Um so I will say that In the future, we would love to be able to get by with one full-time farming position and one off-farm job, which is pretty typical everywhere, but especially in Iowa, of how how farmers are able to make it. Um, And it would be incredible if that wasn't the case, that we could have a bunch of full-time farmers that had viable live lifestyles. and we'll keep working on that. And I think a big part of that is um, affordable land, which in Iowa and many places in the U.S., it's really not that affordable. Um, and through better market opportunity. Um, so both of those things I'm getting to work on at PFI while also putting them in practice here on on the farm. I know that your your journey to have land access has been sort of interesting. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. And so I currently lease the farm that I live on and don't know if we'll be able to um, actually afford farmland in the future. The one thing that's helping us get to that point is that we own a house in in town and rent it out. So we, you know, we're landlords and we're cash flowing that way in order to be out here and lease this land. But really the big issue is and kind of this conundrum that we're having currently is if we are going to be here long term, we're going to need to invest in more permanent infrastructure fencing because all of the fencing here is either super old and needs to be torn out or non-existent. And we're going to have to invest at least $10,000 in grazing infrastructure to create what we really want. And it's really hard, as many of the listeners probably understand, to take that leap in investing in something if you don't own anything if you don't own any of the land. 
So we're trying to work out, do we, do we um, try to buy a few acres and then write a contract with our landlord to be able to access the rest of the acres? Or do we try to buy all of the acres? Or, you know, I wish I could say, you don't have to own the land to be able to manage it and to feel secure. Um, that's really easy to say. Um, I'm not sure that that's actually in practice reality. And so what I'm really trying to focus on right now is building a custom grazing business where I have this home base of a small holding of land that I potentially own in the future. But really, I have these contracts where I'm grazing other parcels of land or under solar panels in nearby cities and then you know, profiting from that. And that is how I can access land and access forage for grazing without having to own it. And so I'm trying to work through all of the details on how to go about that while also working with other beginning farmers who want similar things. Because I think that this concept of custom grazing or contract grazing could be an incredible opportunity for beginning farmer enterprises to get started because we know that land access is the number one issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that what you're speaking to is a, a big question that many folks who go through the uh, Kavira Coalition New Agrarian Program ask themselves sort of, you know, how are they going to be able to start enterprises um, when land prices are very expensive, uh, livestock can be expensive and high risk, um, but really have, you know, a deep commitment to making that work. So I think you're really touching on a lot of um, big questions that, that folks we're working with uh, are asking themselves. Um, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about how Practical Farmers of Iowa is uh, functioning in a role to support that kind of um, activity. Uh, and maybe you can talk about how your organization is providing support and mentorship uh, to beginning farmers in Iowa. So firstly, on the grazing front, what what we've been working on in the last six months is something called the Midwest Grazing Exchange. So it's, that's a website, midwestgrazingexchange.com, um, where where essentially it's Tinder for cows. It's a matchmaking website for livestock and the land. And before I made this website, I was getting a bunch of calls and doing the matchmaking myself, just from the people that I knew in the back of my head. Um, but then I realized like there should really be a platform where someone could go and drop a pin and put a couple pictures of themselves or their livestock and a profile to, and, and to say what they're looking for. So essentially this website acts as if you are a landowner, whether that's you've got a bunch of weeds in your backyard or you have a bunch of pasture to graze or you have row crop fields with cover crops that you would like grazed and you don't have livestock, you can post that you have land that you would love to be grazed. And then the same goes for if you have livestock. You could post how many livestock you have, what type, what type of grazing or forage you're looking for, and then try to find a match based on proximity and based how, on how far you're willing to travel. 
So that exists. Uh, and, and what we're seeing is that a bunch of these t- very similar grazing exchanges are popping up everywhere, all over the U.S. And I had a conversation earlier this week with folks from New Mexico who would love to start a grazing exchange in New Mexico. So, you know, the concept is the same. In practice, it will look a little different in arid rangelands versus on row crop fields that have cover crops in the Midwest. Um, But I think it's a really awesome way to connect aspiring and beginning farmers to land so they can grow their herds. Um, so the other thing is we have Practical Farmers of Iowa has a, a next generation program. Um, and, and we have something called the Savings Incentive Program, which is um, about 12 to 13 farmers get apply and are accepted into this program every year. It's a two-year program. And you're essentially with this cohort of other beginning farmers. They're livestock, vegetable, field crop farmers all across the board. And at the end of your two years, you will have had mentorship visits. We, we match these cohorts of beginning farmers up with experienced mentors in their region. And you'll have plenty of one-on-one time with, with your mentor. And then you also attend beginning farmer retreats every year. Um, with your cohort and other beginning farmers that are graduates of the program. And throughout this two years, you are writing a business plan. So at the end, you'll have a completed business plan that has been reviewed by, by experts. So bankers, lenders, other farmers who've gone through it. Um, and it's also a money matching program. So you save $2,400 throughout the two years and we match that $2,400. So at the end, you'll have $4,800 to apply to some sort of thing to advance your your farm. And a lot of farmers will buy a tractor with it, their first tractor. I know of some beginning farmers that started a pizza farm and they were able to buy two massive picnic tables that seat like 80 people each so they can start hosting their pizza nights and really start fostering community. So just, you know, examples of like those types of tangible items that people spend their, their savings incentive program money on. We also have other matching programs, kind of like Midwest Grazing Exchange, which is matching cows to livestock to land. We have Find a Farmer, which is farm seekers and farm landowners who don't have a next generation to take over the farm. And so we match them up and and there are are many successful matches that have been made through that website in Iowa. And we also have a labor for learning program, which is essentially a matchmaking program for interns and matching them to some seasonal work or a year-long internship on a farm with experienced farmers. Um, And it's, and it's a, important to know a paid internship. And so those are the different types of next generation programs that we've been building over the years. I'm, I'm wondering sort of like in your own learning journey, are there types of mentorship that you didn't have that you wish you would have gotten along the way? Um, I think that it was really easy for me um, 
you know, I've worked on a bunch of different farms, volunteering my time just to get the experience. And when you work with livestock, it's like very hands-on. And so I've gotten like tons of hands-on experience, delivering animals, treating, you know, veterinary treatments, all kinds of stuff like that. That's awesome. I, I, I'm fortunate to have that experience and knowledge. It's all of the business side of things now that I didn't ask questions about when I was younger or wasn't, um, didn't have a mentor that really sat down with me to talk about, which is the stuff that's not so fun to talk about. Right. But it's like all of the steps on, um, how do you start your LLC? Should you have an LLC? Like, you know, what is the legal structure of your farm? What do you need for tax purposes? How do you file a Schedule F form? Um, All of those types of details um, are what I still have to work through on a personal level, but I know that so many farmers struggle with. Um, And so, and there's boot camps out there and, you know, there's plenty of sessions like at our beginning farmer retreat all about it, but it's, it's like, it's information that you don't just pick up after you hear about it once in a presentation. Like it's stuff you really have to go through. So like that, that handholding would be good um, on that kind, you know, for that, for starting a business, how to start a small business, basically. The other side of information that I've just picked up on because of all of the farmers I work with is the marketing side of it. And I just heard a farmer say the other day that, um, that when you're a beginning farmer, you think that production is the most important thing. You have to learn how to grow the thing, but actually the order of operations, if you want to have a successful financially viable farm is marketing business, then production which is like counterintuitive when you're first getting started because you need to learn how to grow cauliflower or whatever it is. So yeah, marketing, then business, then production. And so the marketing side of things, I um, have, I don't have a ton of direct experience selling meat. I mean, I've sold it to my friends and family, but I've never had to start a direct marketing business myself. I just know through years of working with direct marketers meat marketers, how it goes and what, where the struggles are and where the real opportunities are. So it's just taken years of, um, indirect knowledge and just like absorbing that. And it's why I know what I know now, but I like could have started younger taking all like soaking up as much of the marketing knowledge as possible and asking the right questions from an earlier point. I I like what you're saying about business and marketing and sort of understanding how to market what you're producing. I think that there's, for me, there's also a bigger question about like, what is the market landscape (laughs) that sort of informs what, uh, how I think about what new agrarians should be thinking about in the future. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to like big picture, what are other things that uh, new agrarians should be thinking about or engaged in um, to really be thinking about success, not only of their own operations, but of 
um, a diversified type of agriculture in the future. Absolutely, Sarah. And really, like what I have just talked about aligns itself with this, like, this mindset of like, independent farming, I'm going to do everything for myself. And, and truly, we're seeing a shift away from that. And that is so healthy. That is what's gotten us to into the conundrum we're in today is that we've all we're all struggling and turning our wheels to try to do the same thing. And it's not working really for anybody. So I think the future is, is these collaborative efforts. So whether that's like owning a farm with others or just cooperative land management, or what if we had herds that were cooperatively managed, um, you know, very large herds and we, and everyone each potentially owned a share of that herd. Um, I think that we need to start thinking about how we can work together and share our skills. So we're not all trying to do each thing, production, marketing, and business. I think we could divvy up the skill set a bit better, right? And in this more of this feel of a village and of a community. And we need, we just need to mimic that within our, our farm ownership and farm management structures. Um, and, and so like a bunch of the successes that I've seen, especially since COVID have been, um, farmers teaming up to market their products together so maybe technically not cooperatively, but um, one meat farmer pairs up with a cheese, a cheese producer who pairs up with a vegetable producer and they sell their products together in, in bundles or a la carte at a local brewery. And, you know, the, that, that pivot and, and that transition is, is here to stay. And I think more farmers have to think that way. How can they in a, in a local or regional sense, team up to create this hub that instead of, you know, that provides all of the things a consumer wants, maybe not all of them, but like, instead of going to the grocery store, which grocery stores are appealing because they're one-stop shops, right? That's why we have them. Um, try to, try to mimic that for the consumer with your local and regional farmers. So more of this like hub model is really what I think we all need to be striving for. I'm curious if sort of on that same type of like thinking about the future, uh, one thing I think about a lot uh, is sort of where, what role does civic engagement um, play in agriculture? Uh, I've been involved with our um, regional farmers union organization pretty routinely and uh, I think that there's a lot of value in what I'm learning there um, about how there are connections between, you know, production and markets and how we're influenced by policy or how we can influence policy. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to share about civic engagement? So I've been feeling this um, sentiment the last few years. And recently I was on a webinar where Alan Savory was the guest speaker. And he said to a group of grazing educators, 
like you can keep putting on pasture walks all you want and that's great. You know, you're teaching one person each time you're, you know, you're changing hearts and minds and behaviors one by one. And that is important. Keep doing that. But that isn't going to get us the change that we absolutely need to see in the next 50 to 70 years before it's actually too late to, to make widespread change because of our, because of environmental degradation. So he honestly, he just straight up very bluntly said like congressional testimony is what is needed. You need to send farmers to DC. And so I, I do believe that we have to, well, and part of what we do at Practical Farmers of Iowa is we train farmers to be leaders. We send them to trainings to better be better public speakers and to really, you know, concisely get their points across. And then we will, with the help of the National Sustainable Ag Coalition, send them to DC to to testify for Congress. So I think that like we just need to keep doing that. Absolutely need to keep doing that. And not just at a federal level, but you know, at, at any you know, state and local level. So locally, that would mean um, fostering networks of farmers to serve on their local soil and water commissioner, commissioner boards. Um, and not just farmers, but you know, friends of farmers as well, like just people who are interested. I really appreciate all that you shared with us. I'm curious if there's anything that uh, I've missed. Are there things that you would like to share with us to conclude that we haven't talked about so far? Yeah, I I guess I I would love to just kind of paint a picture of what I believe is possible. And, you know, I'm coming from a person who works day in and day out on the Iowa landscape. So we're talking like, what is possible in the Corn Belt? And what I like to envision, and I, I truly believe it's achievable, is it, it it's pretty evident that like corn and soybean farmers and confinement animal feeding operations, they're not going to go away overnight. And so we need to work with them. And so in Iowa, that looks like the integration of livestock in row crop fields through cover crops. That's kind of like the first baby step, grazing cover crops. But like taking that few steps further is we should be installing corridors throughout crop fields or on the, on, on the edges of crop fields and, you know, grazing, like I had mentioned earlier, these like large cooperatively owned herds, potentially like pushing these cooperatively owned herds through these corridors that connect to natural prairie areas or larger swaths of, of prairie or, or river bottom lands that aren't necessarily in corn and bean production. And so just creating like that highway, essentially the roadway for the livestock that's next to all of these different crop farms. So then in the correct season, they could easily access the, the cover crops in the crop farm or, or, you know, glean down crops. Um, And that just opens up the, door to planting 
other things other than corn and soybeans, you know, planting more forages or small grains followed by multi-species cover crops and diversifying our cropping system because we know when we put those crops through livestock, we add value to them. So um, I think that corridors could be huge for livestock and wildlife and, of course, soil health and water quality. But really, then everybody asked the question, like, how are you going to fence it? Fence, fence is the number one obstacle. And so I'm super jazzed about virtual fence technology, which is seemingly getting closer and closer to being viable. Um, I just saw that Vince, the virtual fence company in, in California, got a $12 million private investment to start piloting. And most of this technology has been used on very large ranches in Australia and then like some BLM land out West. Um, and it's just a little too expensive yet to put on small parcels of land like Iowa farms. The average size is 330 acres or something, which is considered pretty small. Um, and so I don't know if the technology is totally viable yet just because of the expense, but with all technologies, that expense will come down. And the other thing is, could this technology be cooperatively owned by farmers and they can all pitch in or publicly owned? Can, can we get the you know, can we get public to pay for some of this stuff? So I think that like there is huge possibilities with virtual techno technology, virtual fence technology, or even just temporary fencing um, to get more integration on our landscape and to open up more opportunities for tons of different types of beginning farmers. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was really fun to hear more about your work and uh, about how you're getting started in your own operation and your thoughts about diversification and integration of different types of agriculture. I think all of that is really wonderful. So yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sarah. Happy to be here. like to thank Megan for joining us today on Regeneration Rising. If you'd like to learn more about the Practical Farmers of Iowa, you can find them at practicalfarmers.org online. Thanks so much, Megan. And now for the tips and tidbits section. My name is Leah Potterwaite. I run a small CSA with my partner. My tip to beginning agrarians is to record everything you do as soon as you do it. It's really hard to remember details, even just a few days later. And the information you record is critical to understand what went well, which pests attacked when, how that late frost impacted different varieties, and on and on. There are lots of cool apps, spreadsheets, and more that can help you with this, and those tools are all great, but I would suggest that you just choose what works for you. For me, I don't have a desire to use my computer or my phone any more than I have to. So we use a large journal, post-it notes for dividers, and a pencil. The pencil helps if you forget your journal out in the rain. And then if you're feeling extra inspired, I would also suggest sit down in the winter with all that information and crunch numbers. How much did you actually harvest? How much did you sell? What varieties did well? Could you have planted those peppers a little bit earlier? 
That's all I have for now. I hope that helps. And if you have a tip or tidbit you'd like to share in the podcast, please send an email to newagrarian at kaviracoalition.org. Looking for a job in regenerative agriculture? Quivira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community, so we're constantly finding awesome job postings. And we decided to send them to your inbox in our inspiring monthly newsletter. We find jobs and apprenticeships that will help you learning and building your career, whether that involves moving cattle on a ranch or attending meetings at an office. A posting we are sending out this week is for our very own new agrarian program. CNR Ranch in Piscenta, California is hiring a passionate apprentice to learn the ins and outs of a small regenerative cattle ranch. This is a great opportunity for young professionals to jump into a career of agriculture. Another job posting is for 4L Ranch in Beaumont, Texas. They are seeking a herdsman to help run their regenerative multi-species livestock enterprise. Sounds pretty awesome to me. You can hear about upcoming opportunities by signing up for our newsletter at quiveracoalition.org. You can also find our past newsletters at quiveracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit kiviracoalition.org slash podcast, become a sponsor or Patreon supporter. We'd like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Sanders, Leah Potterweight, Tyler Eshelman, Tafari Finn, and others for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel-Fisher. Wanderlust, the music you hear in this episode was made by Scott Buckley. And of course, we're extremely grateful for the guests who took the time to talk with us. Thanks so much. We look forward to catching you next time. Mm-hmm.